0: In this episode of Influencers, real estate developer and McCourt Global CEO, Frank McCourt.
1: Technology is a, a tool that can actually help society and democracy to thrive and flourish, or it could be a tool that actually destroys democracy. The data is monetized. The data is used in ways we never gave it permission to to be used, and the data now is even being weaponized. Social media is making it very, very hard for us to have conversations, one with the other, where we're actually listening.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Frank McCourt, who is a real estate developer, civic entrepreneur, CEO of McCourt Global, former owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, founder and CEO of a company called Unfinished that has a lot to do about changing the internet. We'll talk about all that stuff. Frank, welcome. Great to see you. Nice to see you again, Andy. Let's start with Unfinished and the endeavors that are connected to that. What is Unfinished and what are its goals, Frank?
1: Well, Unfinished was uh, started about three years ago when we were you know, uh, increasingly concerned about the state of our democracy and wanted to find out what the heck was going on. And so it started at, um, intentionally ambiguous and quite open. Our first project was a uh, questions project. We called it Unfinished Questions and we crowdsourced questions from people around the world asking them what was there so-called existential question. If there was one question that you're dying to get an answer for right now or you think is of grave concern, what would it be? And um, it was a fascinating project and we came to the conclusion it was inescapable that technology was on people's minds and that uh, the image in my mind that um, has stuck with me was uh, a group of uh, young high school kids from the Bronx marching into Washington Square uh, here in Manhattan and putting up a huge placard that said, uh, is tech our undoing? And so uh, that really got us very focused on the connection between technology and democracy.
0: As I mentioned, you have this long background, long family history in real estate development coming from Boston, you own the sports teams, you still own a sports team, uh, Olympic Marseille in France. But what is it that intrigues you about this tech problem, the internet, and what got you sort of so
1: interested in this? Well, it's it's a a great question and and, um, I'd have to bring you back a little bit to to give you some context, I think. So uh, I think the first data point that's important to to speak to is where I come from, uh, because that is, after all, (laughs) what makes me and all of us who who we are. And I'm the beneficiary of a tremendous family uh, history. My great great grandfather coming here uh, in the eighteen hundreds and then his son, uh, starting a, a company in the late 1800s, um, started uh, building roads, when Henry Ford started building cars. And that is the, uh, the core of, I think, um, who I am and who the family is and, and how we, we think and operate. And, and, and what I mean by that is that we're, you know, we're builders to the core and problem solvers and uh, innovators. And that's just kind of the hard wiring. Um, Roll the clock forward now to my generation and growing up um, in Boston uh, in a in a place where uh, you know people certainly at the time I hope still look at um, public service and politics as something that along with sports is is really important and that was the that's how I grew up that was my dinner table and and um, you know when I think about the dinner table I think of me and my six siblings there were seven of us I was right in the middle you know debating the issues of the time and like most kids we were really good at you know pointing to the problem you know and and uh, but before dinner was over I could hear my mom's voice saying that's great you, 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 you kids have figured out the problem now what are you going to do about it and so um, unfinished and in and, uh, and this connection between tech and, and, and democracy is something that um, you know we're trying to do we're trying to do something about it because we we actually see a rapid erosion of of our democracy, uh, of our political system that uh, is something quite frankly in those days growing up in Boston I never for a second thought I'd be sitting here talking to you about the possibility that uh, democracy was not going to survive in the United States. So gravely concerned about the issue, want our little family business to continue for another five generations and I'm sure others feel exactly the same way about uh, what's important to them and um, deeply concerned about the future of the country and its ability to sustain what is the greatest democratic experiment of all time. I wanna drill down into that last point that you made,
0: but before we do that, Frank, so you have these at least three buckets in your life. You've got McCourt, global, real estate business, sports, and now these internet endeavors. Is it 33, 33, 33? How do you spend your time?
1: Well, actually, we call it the internally the 9010 project and the 9010 project is um, i'm transitioning from uh, spending 90 percent of my time on uh, our array of businesses around the world and 10 percent of my time on this new project called project liberty um, launched by and finished to just the opposite i'm looking to transition so i can spend 90 percent of my time over the next uh, few years on project liberty and Uh, limit 10% of my time to our conventional businesses. Fortunately, we have a group of executives and senior folks within the, the organization that are fully capable of handling those responsibilities, so I'm looking forward to that transition. Okay, so let's talk
0: much more about Unfinished, Project Liberty, and some other parts of that as well. How do all these things connect? So we talked about Unfinished, and that was the starting point. What is Project Liberty and how is that connected?
1: Yeah, uh, it'd, be, it'd be really, I think, helpful to, to clarify that. So yeah, Unfinished has a big through line, big ambition, which is to imagine the future of, gov- of technology, governance, uh, and culture uh, to create a thriving, multiracial democracy and a just economy. That's a big, big through line, that's a big goal. Project Liberty is really identifying a key connection between technology and democracy. So if we're going to have a thriving democracy and a just economy, we need to fix technology. And so Project Liberty focuses on that problem, more a more narrowly focused problem. Uh, and uh, although we're coming forward with a tech idea and a tech solution for people to consider, Project Liberty is not a tech project. And what I mean by that is that I think we're in the, the, the mess we're in right now because Uh, we've let technology, which is just a tool, be used in unhealthy ways. You know, I think of technology as, uh, uh, as one may think of uh, a hammer, right? It's also a tool. And you can take that hammer and go outside and build a house, or you can take that hammer and go outside and kill someone, right? It's just a tool. How we utilize the tool makes all the difference in the world. Technology is uh, a tool that can actually help society and democracy to thrive and flourish or it could be a tool that actually destroys democracy and really does great harm to uh, to society and in particular kids so um, project Liberty is a three tracked project yes it has a tech track and something we'll talk about in a minute I'm sure DSNP but it also has a governance track and a movement track. And it's actually, if you think of a Venn diagram, three circles intersecting, it's really that intersection of the three different tracks that I think distinguishes and differentiates Project Liberty. I don't think we're gonna solve this societal problem and this erosion of democracy if we just leave it to technologists yet again. I think we need social scientists, ethicists, uh, experts in, in governance, and those that can remind us of history and what works and what doesn't work, and also we need to engage civil society, citizenry, people, right, who this technology impacts.
0: So what specifically are the problems of technology, Frank? And it's a bit of a rhetorical question, I guess, but is it privacy? Is it national security? Is it social media? Is it that the people who run companies like Meta and YouTube don't fully understand the implications of their
1: technology? Probably all of the above. Uh, If I were to crystallize it, though, and and really simplify this, I I would say that the problem is the architecture and the way the tech is designed. Uh, You know, Internet 1.0 was a very decentralized Internet uh, and allowed uh, scientists primarily, uh, researchers, to exchange large data sets of information in a very efficient way. It was a great, really revolutionary innovation, uh, and it was, it, 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 these counterparties in the sharing of information were trusted counterparties. I wasn't just sharing information with anyone, I was sharing information, for instance, with you, who I knew and we were collaborating on something. There was a reason to share the information back and forth. Web 2.0 came along, incredible um, uh, additional innovation, which allowed all of us to share information with anyone. So, it, and it was done, I'm sure, uh, with the greatest intention of isn't this an amazing, amazing innovation? Uh, imagine we could be connected to the entire world. And it was done, I'm sure, with this idea that we as human beings would use this innovation in the healthiest, most wonderful of ways to advance civilization. What's happened is not that. And you know, when you, quote, move fast and break things, end quote, you move fast and break things. And we're seeing now that really important things, like democracy, are being broken because there's not the guardrails, there's not the values embedded in the technology uh, to make sure it works uh, in the way intended. Uh, I'm not even sure we know what we want it to do at the moment, and what I mean by that is if you optimize for rage, you get rage. If you optimize for democracy, you get democracy. Remember, it's just a tool, and so we need to take a step back, I think, and really, Um, make sure that we're using this tool, this utility, for the good, for the common good, to support the goals of society. And uh, I think it's really great news that uh, technology is advancing now from Web 2.0 to Web 3, which creates an opportunity at least for us now knowing what the internet is capable of to actually getting it right this time. Mm -hmm. So really, designing the way the internet works so it works for people, not for platforms, is key. Fundamentally, I think we need to give people ownership and control of their own data. We need to not allow our data to be sucked up by a few large platforms, aggregated, algorithms applied to it. The data is monetized, the data is used in ways we never gave it permission to, to be used, and the data now is even being weaponized, right? Where we're triggering society to behave in certain ways. Very, very unhealthy.
0: I love the way you call into question that supposedly only virtuous statement, move fast and break things. Um, the government, there's a lot of talk in Washington DC about regulating tech, about harnessing tech, about changing the course of tech. Why hasn't that been effective, Frank?
1: Well, because the technology, uh, moves far more quickly than our regulatory environment moves. Andy, democracies are designed to move slowly. You know, the deliberative process of our democracy is one to, to we, 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 we move in a methodical, slow uh, fashion to make sure we're making the right decisions that affect many, many people. It's not designed to move super fast. Technology on the other hand is moving at lightning speed and so our regulatory environment will never keep up with the speed of technology and that isn't even to get into the, the point of the resources available to these large platforms and, the, uh, and, and, and their drive forward with their agenda versus our regulatory environment and our government, you know, writ large, are dealing with a range of problems and a range of issues. So uh, I think it's a mismatch, hmm. quite frankly. But there is, there is hope. I mean, it's not like it, it, that we can't solve this. I think we need to both innovate our way out of this and create a, a new architecture, a new model for how the internet works, one that respects individuals' data and their, their agency over that data, and um, one that embeds values into the the actual coding, into the making of the the technology so that we're optimizing for what we want to optimize for, not just breaking things. And uh, yeah, and we're at that moment where we can do that. Having said that, regulation will play a role, and I'm gonna give you an example. We, We started a telecom company in the 1990s. And uh, called RCN, and that company was uh, the first ever to bundle. You know, we the internet was nascent. We had squeaky clean uh, broadband, fiber optic in, in the ground, and uh, and this uh, idea of high-speed internet access, phone, and cable TV all coming from one provider was very attractive to consumers. But when they came to sign up for the service, they wanted their phone number we had to say to them, sorry, we can't give you the phone number because the oligarchs of the time said they owned your phone number, right? So all the big providers, the carriers said, that's my phone number, it's not the person using it. Well, when the Telecommunications Act was passed, phone numbers became portable. So people, there was friction about signing up for our little telecom company and many others because people wanted to keep their telephone number. And so it wasn't until 96 when the Telecom Act was passed and, and our government said, here's a regulation. The regulation is that you individuals own their phone numbers not these carriers that allowed things to, to thrive, right? So, so um, that was a regulation, but it was not in how we're thinking of regulations as always to constrain. It was actually a regulation to remove friction and allow innovation to occur. I use that example because I think it's very similar to where we are now with with the internet and people's data. I think we need data portability and interoperability, just like the Telecom Act provided back in 1996 for Telecom.
0: You must be working with other people on this, Frank, outside of your organization. Are you working with people in government? Have you talked to people in Silicon Valley? There are some high profile Silicon Valley dissidents, if you will, that maybe you've been in touch with as, uh, as well. Um, can you talk about that, please?
1: Yeah, it's, we're, we're working with anybody and everybody that wants to work with us. This is not, this can't be my project and be successful. This is, this is a, uh, and, and the technology that we're putting forward was, was something that was brought forward by our, our tech team, not by me. This is a collaboration from, its, from the start. And the point is that as we build out these three tracks, We need collaborators uh, and partners and leaders from all over. This, This is decidedly not one person or one family's or one company's project. This is simply saying, hey, there's an idea here where we can actually innovate our way out of this mess. Please join and please help make it better and please help make it work. So we have partners in every track. We have in the in the movement track, we, I think we have now 50 major, major organizations around the world involved. In the governance track, we have uh, Georgetown uh, University and Sciences Po in Paris are involved and there'll be others coming uh, on board. And on the tech side, we've released the decentralized social networking protocol. It's out in the world. It's no longer ours. It's open source and we have builders all around who are now building on it. In creating products. And we, we have, uh, for instance, a, a web 2.0, uh, existing 2.0 social media platform that has come to us want and is migrating all of their 20 million users onto DSMP. That's a company called Miwi. And when, when that uh, transition or migration is complete, they'll be the largest decentralized social networking um, uh, platform in the world. And that's just the beginning. That's just the first mover, because we have a queue of of other companies that want to migrate to DSNP, because it it gives us all the benefits of Web 2.0. We're all connected and have that network effect, but in a much healthier way, because people own and control their data. You decide who gets to see your data, your social graph, uh, and on what terms, as opposed to somebody else making that decision for you. Think of it as your digital your digital DNA as you would your biological DNA. You wanna control the decisions about your biological DNA, I think you should your digital DNA as well. Remind us what DSNP is again. So, the, the thought here is that... And what does it stand for? Uh, um, it's the, a, a de- decentralized social networking protocol. Mm-hmm. And think of, um, you know, the internet operates in the way it operates because there are simple protocols that we've right. all agreed to adopt. So. Um, I don't recall anybody asking me if I you know, wanted to, be, to use HTTP or not. I use it. You use it. That's how we communicate. We've had conversations and, and Zoom calls and so on and so forth, all of us. It, it, because we've, we've adopted a protocol which connects us. And it, that, that's great. But the point I'm, I'm making is that the Internet itself operates based on these simple protocols. And we, we're not hostage to it. We're not, we don't have to, it doesn't have to operate the way it operates. There can be new protocols that we adopt, which cause the internet to operate in a different way. So imagine an internet where rather than our social graphs and billions of other social graphs, which is essentially the collection of our relationships and, and our, digital, our digital profile, was owned and controlled by each of us right. as individuals within a universal social graph. So that the, so, the, the social graph was universal and part of the internet itself. Right. So it was, the internet suddenly was socially aware. And we all had agency over our data within that universal graph, could share it with who we wanted to or withdraw that permission and, and vice versa. We control those decisions. Right now, we click on these absurd cookies that, give, that sign, into, sign onto the terms of a few use cases, and we give them permission to use our data. Imagine a world where it's flipped, the new apps that are built are, we're giving them permission, right, on certain terms to use our data, and in, we control those decisions. So it's ex- exactly the opposite of the way it works now. But yet we have the benefits of the connectivity.
0: My understanding is you'll be working with Francis Haugen, the former Facebook engineer, who's become critical of that company and, and others in terms of
1: their policies. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, we're, we're um, yeah we've been collaborating with Francis, and uh, I think she's done a great a, a great public service by pointing out the the problems of of the current tech architecture and uh, what Project Liberty is about is coming forward with a solution and working with people like Frances who have uh, keen insight into what's wrong and are interested in putting a a, a solution forward and and her duty of care project is a great project in this regard and we're partnering with with her and she's joining our efforts in Project Liberty to actually build out uh, a, a new solution and, and transform how the internet works so that it's much more healthy. You asked me before about, okay, what's wrong with the current, uh, current uh, architecture and, I, uh, and what, what would change, and I mentioned specifically, ownership and control of data. A real huge problem right now is social media and the damage it's doing in undermining um, our democracy and our society generally, because it's it's becoming very much like Babylon. You know, a lot of uh, people talking at each other and arguing, and, and very a lack of kind of a um, civil conversation and discussion. And and what when you are optimizing, you have an architecture that optimizes for rage, because rage equates to stickiness, and stickiness creates to more time online, and more time online creates the greater ad ad revenue. That's that sends us down a, a very, very un- unhealthy path. You know, d- democracy, I think we're all coming to realize, is a really fragile thing. And it's based on, uh, on a shared set of facts, yeah, you know, and that we as a society, we can differ in opinion, but we at least have a shared sense of reality and trust at a societal level. And the internet, and social media in particular, in its current form, is actually destroying the two things required for democracies to function. We no longer have, now, now we have alternative facts, right? Now we have uh, mis and disinformation to the nth degree. We, it's, even, it's even to the point where foreign governments, right, are interfering and in dis- dis- disrupting our elections. And even internal forces that would like to disrupt things are, are using dis and misinformation, which the, the social media current platforms just enable uh, this chaos to exist. And also this idea of, of trust. If, if we can't trust one another and to, to be able to converse and, sh- and, and actually disagree, but we know we're, we're, we're trying to get to you know, a, a healthy America, we, we agree on America and, uh, and love America, uh, then if, if that trust is destroyed that allows us to have some confidence in our institutions, some confidence in our government, some confidence in each other, then I don't think democracy has a prayer. So social media has actually been that that hammer that's that's killing people, not that hammer that's building homes.
0: It's fascinating stuff. Um, I I do want to shift gears a little bit in the the short amount of time we have remaining to ask you about the two other parts of of your work, which are sports and real estate, Um, starting with real estate. Um, And, you know, Coming out of the pandemic, Frank, what is your take on America's cities
1: in terms of being able to rebound from um, what they've gone through? Well, I think um, they will rebound. I think there are cities like New York that have such a head start uh, in, in the sense that they have, uh, how, how do you replicate what occurs in New York? How do you rep, uh, replicate the civic infrastructure, the cultural institutions and offerings, uh, and the way of life. Uh, and that's not even speaking to the, you know, it, it, all, all of the, you know, being the financial center of, of, of this country and, and, and perhaps the world. Um, it's very hard to replicate places like New York and, and London and Tokyo and so on and so forth. So I think these cities will most certainly uh, be back and continue to thrive. I'm, I'm more concerned, quite frankly, with the disparity. That exists, and where we have, uh, e- uh, e- and it's happening all around the world in, in in Western democracies. But let's just stay focused on the, on the uh, on the U.S. You know, you just have this, almost, uh, two different worlds existing within the country, right? And t- t- two extreme, extreme um, uh, ways of living, ways of thinking, cultures, values, so on and so forth, and. I think that the pandemic has exacerbated this, and uh, that's what I I think we need to address. It's not whether or not, um, you know, from a pure real estate perspective, we can pick winners and losers. It's that we we should have more, we should have fewer losers is what we should have. And how do we actually create a healthier overall uh, country and so that um, there's value and there's opportunity everywhere, not just in a few large cities. So I think what, what the, the pandemic has done is it's shown a bright light on, on these issues that we need to come to grips with as a society, You know, as all of us need to be, be engaged in this discussion. And um, I think that's very difficult right now because we've seen how social media is making it very, very hard for us to have conversations one with the other where we're actually listening. And uh, when you have uh, uh, social media platforms and people on them who really aren't having a conversation like you and I are right Mm -hmm. now, but they're really performing, it's theater, right? It's theater to get a reaction. That's very, very
0: unhealthy. Or it's to increase the bottom line. I mean, or they have state-sponsored objectives, to your point. Um, Sports. You own the Dodgers for a time. You now own uh, Olympique de Marseille, uh, the, uh, the the soccer team in France in the top league there. Uh, what did you learn from owning the Dodgers, and how does that apply to owning a soccer team in France, Frank?
1: Well, I, what I learned is that um, these we don't own these clubs. The, the, we're stewards of these clubs. These are really <coughs> civic assets. are as close as as close as a A a private investment will ever get to a civic asset. These clubs mean a huge amount to the communities uh, where they reside and to the fandom generally that supports them. Uh, In in a place like um, uh, Marseille, where there's this, this is the club. It's not that there's a choice of four or five professional clubs in in four or five different sports. Football is is a religion in in Europe and in particular places like Marseille. So this matters deeply to the citizens of Marseille and to the fans of OM all around the world. And so approaching it, it's not a business. It's, it's really something totally different. Does it need to balance its books so that it's sustainable and it can, it, and it can move on? For sure. It's, it, it's, it's not a, an excuse to say it shouldn't be run in a, uh, in a professional way, uh, to the contrary, but it's not a business. And it, it's, it's really, these, these uh, sports clubs or franchises are incredibly important to the social fabric of these communities. And the, the individuals in these communities identify greatly with these clubs. Like I say, it, they're really their club, right? The, the, the fans and the citizens view it. I learned in Marseille, you know, when somebody said to me very early on, um, uh, it was something like this, they said, you know, you know Frank, you'll learn in Marseille that uh, not every Marseillais is a fan of football, but every Marse- Marseillais is a fan of OM. And it's that close and, and that tightly knit, and, and as a matter of fact, when I talk to some people and I mention Marseille, they say, are you talking about the city or the club? Mm-hmm. Because it's that uh, closely identified and perhaps more so than any other city in the world. A lot of responsibility there. Sure is. Final question,
0: Frank. Real estate, sports, and now this internet endeavor. What do you see as your legacy and how do you want people to think about your work?
1: Well, uh, well, first of all, I don't, I don't think in, in that particular way uh, because I think my responsibility is to, as, as the steward of a five generation uh, old business, is to carry on and to bring it forward. Uh, and so I ride on a lot of sh- shoulders uh, that, that were before me and I just wanna do the right thing for my family and this enterprise so that future, future stewards of this enterprise will be able to uh, take it to an even uh, higher, higher level with, with more impact uh, in the world and, and, and do more, build more good positive things. So I think of Project Liberty as something that is critical Right now, we have a some experience, a network, resources, skill sets, some ideas that I hope are helpful at this moment in time. But again, I wanna emphasize, this is, the, 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 the issues that we're confronting right now in America are not issues that any one person or one family or one company is gonna solve. We need to work together to do this. And we're simply putting forward um, a, a set of possibilities, right? And, and Project Liberty is, not a tech project per se, but it has a very, very important tech idea that if adopted would completely transform how the internet works. And I think we need to think about a new architecture for technology uh, as we work our way and innovate our way through this. So um, uh, I'm more concerned, quite frankly, um, about a, an America where uh, something that growing up I thought was beyond doubt meaning our democracy, uh, I'm, I'm more concerned about sustaining that democracy so that our, our little business can continue for another five generations And I am worried about my legacy.
0: Frank McCourt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andy. Good to be with you again. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter, at Yahoo Finance, and at sirwor